Right, this is Dr. Kelly for History 311. Uh, we're going to be beginning our first lecture, so why don't you go over to uh, the PowerPoint, which should be on Moodle, and uh, we'll get started. Uh, today we're kind of doing some foundational stuff, uh, kind of get into this whole, you know, uh, Africa, uh, some of the other issues going on with Africa. Uh, this is more of an archaeological uh, day than the other days, which are going to be more historical. More geography, more archaeology, a little bit of religion, uh, a lot of different things. Uh, not as much pure history as the rest of the class will, but still it's, it's pretty important to know. So uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is Africa. Africa itself. Africa is a very large place. Uh, the slide says it is a huge and diverse land. Um, it's a very large continent. It's the second largest continent in the world. Only Asia's bigger, and um, Africa's really big. Um, you can fit the United States and China and some other places in there and have some room to spare. It's, it's a very large continent. It's not a country. Uh, that is one thing that people often get mixed up with Africa, saying, like, oh, it's Africa, this is African, whatever. It's a huge landmass. Now, there's a lot of different different zones in it, a lot of different, uh, you know, climate zones in there. Um, the, the big ones, uh, the big ones, the, the three that I want you to know about is you have the, the desert, the Saharan Desert, which is kind of in the north. If you go a little bit to the south of it, you have the Shahel, which is a uh, word that basically means shore. Uh, kind of the shore, basically the kind of land outside of the desert. Uh, you have some grasslands, a bit more tree areas there. Uh, it's spelled S-A-H-E-L, Shahel. Um, I believe it's Arabic, actually, for, for sure. But it's basically, it's kind of the area on the edges of the Saharan Desert. That's the second main biome. And the third is a savanna, which is kind of that rainforest kind of area. Um, Lion King uh, Africa is, if you will, where you have, like, you know, the, the giraffes and lions and elephants and junk running around. Uh, that's generally what people think of whenever they whenever you say the word Africa. However, uh, the, the Saharan Desert, and also the Sahel in particular, uh, the Sahel is a very large portion of Africa, a very important biome, uh, particularly for this class, particularly for the origins of African Americans. Uh, you also have some rainforests. Of course, you have a couple mountain ranges, not too, too many mountain ranges in Africa. You have Kilimanjaro, of course, but that's about it. Uh, rainforest, of course, as you all know, that's a dense growth of tall trees, characteristic of hot, wet re hot and wet regions. Now, Africa is an interesting place because it is more than likely, not more than likely, it, it is the birthplace of humanity. Uh, pretty much all humanity comes from somewhere around the Savannah region. Uh, you have the Homo habilis, which is our earliest humans. Uh, modern humans, the Homo sapien, they evolved from the Homo erectus. Uh, this is theoretically a controversial subject, um, mainly because some people don't like the idea that all humanity comes from Africa. Also, there is some evidence that you have early development of civilizations uh, outside of Africa. Uh, civilization is a term I don't really like to use because it implies uh, a degree of advancement, a degree of sophistication, also value judgments for a group of people, which I don't think really, uh, it, it, you really get into like some like white supremacy notions, some like Eurocentric notions, basically one group of people saying another group of people is uncivilized. 
That said, though, um, I guess advanced cultures, uh, we're talking early, early cultures, uh, your river, your river civilizations uh, around the Nile, around the Tigris and Euphrates, around the Indus River and in China as well. Uh, a lot of our earliest human, like I said, I hate the word use word, use word civilizations, but advanced cultures come around rivers. Uh, there's also, I don't want to say evidence, but there's also some, you know, researchers who, who suggest that Africa wasn't necessarily the first place. Uh, maybe it was actually uh, particularly the Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, for instance, the, the Bible, um, the Bible, which is a book you might have heard of, uh, it mentions the Garden of Eden being somewhere around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, you know, you have a lot of archaeological evidence and, like, you know, bones and things like that uh, for Africa. However, that's only been within the past couple hundred years. Might things change? Eh, we don't really know. So that's when we talk about the multi-regional uh, model. There's also the out-of-Africa model. Uh, the out-of-Africa model is a bit controversial. I hate to use the word controversial. But has a, a bit of a... There, there's a bit of kerfuffle about it. Some people don't like it. Um mainly because it plays with notions of white supremacy and things like that. Uh, the out-of-Africa model is basically that all human beings come from Africa. Uh, basically, you have the first human beings, period, living in Africa uh, when they first came down from trees or whenever God made them, whichever. Um, I don't really get into that. That's, that's up to you because it's pretty hard to say definitively one or the other of something that happened um, thousands of years ago, probably tens of thousands of years ago. However, this idea that Africa is the birthplace of all humanity uh, can be seen as, I don't want to say controversial, but unsettling for some people because then it's like, okay, well, the people from Africa are like, you know, the true humans. Also kind of puts a wedge into this idea of like white supremacy or things like that. Uh, as I said, that is more archaeological, um, you know, more anthropological, I suppose. Not as much history. Uh, let's see. So that about does it for that. Uh, if, if, if you can see right here, there's a pretty good map of the uh, of Africa and its different zones. You see the Sahara, then you have the Sahel, and then you have the Savannah region. Uh, the Sahel, if you want to look at that map, is primarily, you know, right around Cape Verde, Western Suzanne, Niger, Niger River. You have the various bands of the rainforest, but the Shahel is mainly, as you can see, that little strip right there, um, right under the Sahara Desert, the uh, Indue Plateau, Morero, Southern Egypt, that part of area there, that is the Sahel. That's mainly what we're talking about, and also Western Sudan area. So with that said, uh, a lot of ancient civilizations, a lot of, uh, you know, really old areas. Uh, the earliest civilization, and I hate to use the word civilization for reasons I just said, but uh, your textbook likes it. That's kind of a, a general language that historians of this region use, so I will use it, even though I think it is problematic, uh, would be Egypt. Um, Egypt is a very, very, very ancient, ancient, ancient empire. Uh, very ancient region, one of our most ancient regions in the world. Like I said, it's one of the four um, river civilizations of Tigris, Euphrates, Indus River, which is around India, uh, a couple rivers in China, and finally the Nile River in Africa. Uh, the, Ni the, the Egyptians are the oldest one in Africa. 
Uh, in the 1800s, 19th century, whatever we want to call it, uh, England has a veiled protectorate over Egypt, and this is where modern Egyptology starts getting its going. This is when you start find uh, they start discovering um, more of the pyramids' bodies, uh, the Rosetta Stone, uh, for instance, which was actually discovered by uh, Napoleon, weirdly enough, and then the British got it. Um, it is, you know, it has hieroglyphics on it, and it's a way that's translatable. Basically, it has three different languages, and one of which we already knew. Then there was like a version of Greek we didn't necessarily know. And finally, there's hieroglyphics on the same thing. And because of that, we've been able to decipher hieroglyphics. That happened also in the 19th century. So there's this real explosion of Egyptology. Uh, you know, they find King Tut's tomb. They start excavating more of the um, ancient, you know, tombs. And they find out this is a very, very old uh, civilization. And there's also a lot of arguments about, are Egyptians black? Uh, there's no denying that Egyptians are African. I mean, Egypt is on Africa. It, it clearly is. Uh, however, there is a lot of talk about, are Egyptians black? Particularly, are ancient Egyptians black? Uh, you might be like, no, they're Arab, because, you know, it's a fair, predominantly Muslim country, all those things. Problem is, if we go back to, you know, the 5,000 years or so, whenever Egypt really gets its height, whenever the kingdoms start unifying, there aren't really Arabs there, and there certainly is no Islam. Islam's a little over 1,000 years old, so there is no Islam there. There's no Muslim there, of course. And, and so there is this kind of this, uh, this talk about, are Egyptians black? Now, some Africans, some Afrocentrists, uh, say that, yes, Egyptians were black. They use this to kind of refute claims of African inferiority. That's something we're going to get into quite a bit. Uh, this idea that Africans and black people as a whole are inherently inferior. Uh, that is something you're going to hear quite a bit. Uh, that's part of racism. We're going to talk a lot about racism during this class. Hello. Uh, this idea that, you know, they are somehow lesser inherently by being black. And some Afrocentrists are saying, no, 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 no. Here's evidence that the most you know, advanced people of the ancient world, they were black. You cannot say that black people are inherently inferior because they're not inherently inferior. You need to treat us like human beings. That was one of the justifications for slavery was that they're inferior. Uh, traditionalists say, no, they're not black. They were Egyptian. They were uh, some sort of pre-Semitic people. Um, you know, they, they, they had more in common with the people of the Middle East than they did with Africa. Uh, it's a big kerfuffle. I'm not really getting into it. Uh, Egypt was hierarchical, uh, very much based upon a class system. Uh, Egypt definitely has a very strict class system. Uh, Egyptian civilization itself, you go over one slide, it was called the Gift of the Nile. Uh, the Nile is the reason why Egypt exists. Uh, the Nile River is the largest river in the world, also one of the few rivers that flows from south to north, which is just kind of interesting. Um, it floods regularly every year. Not nowadays, since they damned it, but during the ancient times, basically year-round, they knew once a year the Nile was going to flood. And because of that, they could base a lot of things around it. Uh, whenever the Nile flooded, it brought like silt and good soil to the region, uh, to, to the banks of the river. So whenever the floods receded, you had very good fertile soil. Also, the fact that the floods came regularly, pretty much every year, um, the Egyptians were able to like really plan their entire identity around the continual flooding of the Nile. Um, you know, whenever you talk anything about Egypt, I mean, yeah, there's pharaohs and you know the sun god Ra and all that fun stuff, 
But the main thing you need to know about is the Nile itself and its regular flooding. Uh, Egypt itself uh, unifies around 3150 uh, uh, 3, BCE. Oh, BT dubs. Um, BCE means BC. Um, CE means AD. Um, before Common Era and Common Era. Uh, the reason we use that is because uh, BC means before Christ, AD means Anno Domino in the year of our Lord. Um, that doesn't really apply to people who don't give much credence to Jesus, and so it's just a more inclusive way to say things. Uh, Egypt resisted change for thousands of years. Yeah, you have all these different regions. Egypt kind of does its own thing. It has a very strong um, pharaoh system for quite a while. Uh, expands beyond the Nile Valley and 1500 or so BCE. Uh, they start using the title Pharaoh in this period. Uh, Pharaoh literally means great house. Uh, they are semi-divine figures. Uh, it's not believed that they are gods themselves, but like they're pretty closely connected to the gods. Uh, Egypt has a polytheistic religion. Uh, the most important gods are Ra and Osiris. Uh, Ra is the sun god. Osiris is the god of life and death, and I think he's also the god of the Nile. Uh, you can see a map of Egypt right there. Uh, hieroglyphics, you don't need, really need to know about that. I'll uh, delete that. Uh, what you do need to know about, though, is Kush, Miro, and Axiom. Uh, Nubia is to the south. Uh, it's in modern-day Sudan. It is made an Egyptian colony. Uh, Nubia is to the south of Egypt. It was an Egyptian colony. Uh, later on, the Nubians, they established the kingdom of Kush, which is an independent kingdom, and they take control of Upper Egypt. Now, unlike the Egyptians, where there is a bit of controversy of whether or not they're black, uh, Nubians are black. Nubians are definitely considered black. That is something that is really not up for discussion. Uh, there is no debate. There is no kerfuffle or controversy about the racial identity of Nubians. Uh, pretty much everybody knows that Nubians are indeed black. And a lot of what we think of as Egyptian culture and iconography actually comes from the Nubians, particularly Kush. Uh, most importantly, for instance, is the pyramid. Uh, the pyramid, for instance, uh, mainly comes from Nubia. Uh, they're the first ones to really start making pyramids. Uh, if you go to Nubia, which doesn't exist nowadays, but if you go to like, the, the remains of Kush, you're going to see some of the early pyramids. Now, don't get me wrong. Those pyramids are tiny compared to the later pyramids, the great pyramids of Egypt. But the earliest pyramids are actually in Kush. And the Egyptians kind of copy that, um, you know, burial places. Uh, later on, the Kushites do take control of Upper Egypt. That might be the time where they start really implementing the pyramids. Uh, later on, the Egyptians do kind of kick them out. And they, they kick them out. They do their own thing. Uh, the Kushites go back down. Uh, when they get kicked out, they move their capital to Moreau. Um, they trade with Eastern Africa and the Mediterranean. Uh, they're known for being south of Egypt, known for being pretty successful. Uh, later on, Axiom, which uh, later becomes modern-day Ethiopia, destroys Moreau, and that kind of does it for these people. The reason they're important, number one, they are definitely thought of as black, and also a lot of things we associate with Egyptian culture actually come from these areas. Uh, Ethiopia, in particular, later on, so become very important, but this is all Eastern Africa. Now, the thing I want you to know about really is Western Africa. Um, we're taking a huge time jump here. Uh, we're going from like, you know, 3000 BCE to about, you know, eh, 
five or six hundred CE. So about two, three thousand year jump here. Um, most African Americans, most African Americans, not all, but most African Americans can trace their ancestry to West Africa. The vast majority of slaves that came to the United States came from West Africa. In fact, the vast majority of slaves from Africa who came to the New World, uh, we're going to talk about that later when we get into the Middle Passage, they came from West Africa. Uh, West Africa is a very physically, culturally, and ethnically diverse region. Um, you know, quite large, quite diverse, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different ethnicities. Uh, West Africans begin cultivating crops uh, with animal husbandry beginning around eh, 1000 BCE. Uh, the earliest farmers produce grains, they tend tattle, they have goats. Um, what really gets them going, though, is trade. Uh, they are based mainly around the Shahail, which, if you remember me talking about that, is kind of that shore region or off the Sahara Desert. Um, stuff, some stuff can grow there. In fact, it's a lot easier to grow stuff there than in the rainforest. Uh, a lot easier to do agriculture in this type of region than it is in the rainforest. Um, however, trade is what really gets them going. You have the Berbers, you have the Wangaras. Uh, these are traders that are trading across the Saharan Desert, um, gold, all sorts of other things like that, um, pepper, a lot of different things, a lot of different spices, not so much slaves yet, but they're trading from the Sahara, across the Saharan Desert. Uh, the Wangara, in particular, are known for being able to traverse the Saharan Desert. This is pre-camel times, I should mention. This is before camels. Uh, they're able to get everything across the Saharan Desert. Uh, the Berbers are the same way. They're also trading. And trade is what really makes the first Western Sudanese empires. All right. Now, remember the Sudans in Eastern Africa. Uh, these guys are in Western Africa. They're kind of trading along. Now, the first real trade kingdom we really want to talk about is Ghana. Ancient Ghana. Uh, the Sankey people, they dominate this region with iron weapons. Uh, that is one thing about Africa, which really has it above Europe for quite a long time, has to do with metalwork. Uh, some of the earliest uh, metalwork in the world, and some of the most advanced of its time period, comes from Africa. Uh, particularly iron weapons. Iron weapons are strong. They're fairly heavy. Uh, steel and everything comes later. But still, iron is much better than bronze or stone or anything else you could come in. And the Sankey people, they come in and they dominate West Africa with their iron weapons. They dominate and they start taking over. They make a trade empire, which is helped immensely by the fact that they have those weapons. Now, what they do start making is kings. They start making a lot of kings. Now, something that also comes in this time period is the camel. Uh, camels are not native to Africa. They are not native to the Saharan Desert. Uh, they come from other places. Uh, some of them actually come in with the first Muslim traders. We're talking about, talking about the centrality of Islam in just a second. Uh, the Muslims were the ones who had the camels, and they're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Uh, camels are like built for desert travel. Uh, they can go days without eating or drinking, almost weeks even. Uh, their humps store fat, not water, they store fat. Basically, once the camel makes it to the Saharan Desert, this changes everything. There's endurance over long distances. They're able to get a lot more things going on. 
Uh, in particular, they're exporting pepper, some slaves, not as much as we'll get into later, and gold. Gold is the big one. Gold is the big one. Uh, gold is the reason why uh, West Africa starts getting really noticed is because of gold. That's also one of the reasons why the Arab merchants first start coming. Uh, the Arab merchants first start coming. They go into Ghana's capital. They settle it. Uh, it does decline later on with religious rivalries. We're going to talk about that in just a second with the centrality of Islam. But if you look, for instance, if you go over one slide, you'll see ancient Ghana. Uh, not a very large region by any stretch, but what's going to be coming later, bordered by the Senegal River and the Niger River. Remember, it's on the, it's on the Sahel right there. Kumbi Sahel is right there. Uh, Anagos is there, too. Uh, they're mainly built upon trade. Mainly built upon trade. Uh, Ghana was around from about 400 CE to about 1,000 CE, give or take. About 600 years of relevance. Um, what really made them get quite large is trade. Now, this is small potatoes compared to what comes next, which is Mali. Uh, the Empire of Mali... Uh, comes eh, around 1200 or so. Oh, it says right there, 1230. Uh, 1230 to 1690. Uh, Sundiata is the guy who forges Empire Mali. He also makes it Muslim. Okay, here's where it gets kind of interesting and contentious. All right, so before Mali, uh, particularly in Ghana, pretty much everybody in West Africa claimed traditional West African beliefs as the basis of their power, political, political power. <clears throat> Uh, West African traditional beliefs, kind of like tribalism, not tribalism, like uh, animalism, ancestral spirits, that sort of thing. A uh, little bit of animalism. It, it's a traditional belief. They have traditional beliefs in magic, things like that. Uh, Islam does not really allow any of that. Um, Islam is very particular about, you know, there's no God but Allah, and uh, Muhammad is his prophet. They're not really big on magic or anything like that. They also have literacy. A lot of what we know about West Africa comes from the writings that the Muslims left. This is not to say that before Islam, they were stupid uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, just because somebody is illiterate does not mean they're unintelligent. Uh, there are many ways and many different traditions, really storytelling traditions, that kept uh, information alive. Uh, prior to writing. However, because of history, because of the way things really work out, uh, particularly with history, there is a lot more emphasis placed upon writing as being a little bit more of a legitimate way to do it. So what you have with Mali is you have like an elite upper class of like writers and scribes who are primarily Muslim, and then you have the lower class, underclass, if you will, which is primarily traditional African beliefs. West African beliefs. Now, Sundiata, um, there, there's an epic called Sundiata, which you might have had to read in a comparative literature course or world lit course. Um, I'm not going to make y'all read it. Pretty interesting if you ever get a chance to read it, though. Sundiata is a figure that kind of bridges both traditional African beliefs and also Islam. He, he claims both. He claims that he is, you know, Allah's chosen, but he also claims to have some magical powers, even though it can be at odds with his uh, Muslim backing. There is, like I said, a lot of contention about that. Uh, a lot of different, you know, where, where is the claim for legitimacy coming? You know, is it coming from just the Muslim state? Because then you alienate the 
the underclass, but if you claim just to be from the underclass with traditional West African beliefs, you alienate, uh, you're called like a heretic or like apostate by the Muslims who are in the more upper classes. So just be aware of that contention. Um, Sundiata does make Mali Muslim primarily, even though there's a lot of under West African beliefs going on. Uh, Timbuktu is the city he establishes. It becomes a major city for trade. Uh, Timbuktu also becomes a major center for learning as well. Sports a lot of things, uh, gold, salt, and some slaves. Slavery is nowhere near as big as it gets later. Uh, we're talking in a second about like what kind of slavery goes on in West Africa. The big one is gold. Now, the thing with gold, most of the gold in West Africa comes from two gold fields called Bambuk and Barre, neither of which actually gets all that powerful on its own. It's kind of a irony of life is that the places that are sometimes the most wealthy when it comes to natural resources, have some of the weakest political control and actually generally are not in control of their own substances. Uh, that happens to Bambuk and Beret quite a bit throughout West African history. Even though they have the gold fields, uh, they're always a major target for pretty much everybody else. So never are Bambuk and Beret, which is kind of in the western part of Africa. I don't think that's the western part of West Africa. If you look at the map of Mali, you don't actually see it on there, which is a bummer. Um, kind of to the south around the alley, uh, south part of the Niger River, sort of closer to Sierra Leone, modern-day Sierra Leone. Uh, that, that's the Mali kind of area over there. Uh, the Mali really reaches its height under the reign of Mansa Musa. If you go over one side, you will see Mansa Musa. Uh, Mansa Musa is crazy rich. Uh, adjusted for inflation, he is said to be the richest man to ever live. He is also a very devout Muslim. Um, even Europeans in this time period are aware of Mansa Musa. This map you see right here is from an uh, old uh, Portuguese map. You see him in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, he's got a ton of gold. It's said adjusted for inflation, he is worth about $500 billion dollars. Very, very rich individual, uh, mainly because of the control of gold. Mainly because of the control of, of gold. Uh, very well known for his Hajj to Mecca. Uh, basically, that's something that all all uh, Muslims are expected to do at least once in their life. Uh, you're supposed to give charity while you go there. Uh, according to legend, whenever Mansa Musa goes to Cairo, he gives us away so much gold to everybody in Cairo that it actually devalues currency. Like He's giving away so much gold while he's in Cairo that he pretty much makes gold less valuable. Uh, the Mali exists for quite a while. They're eventually uh, taken over by the Songhai. Uh, the Songhai really are the ones that are uh, stay in power pretty much until the coming of the Europeans and uh, the modern slave trade in West Africa. Uh, like the Mali, the Songhai, they're a Muslim empire. Uh, Sunni Ali uh, kind of brings the Western Sunnis empire. And then the main guy is Asaka Muhammad Torre. Really does like in Islamic influence throughout the Songhai. They're kind of to the western part of the Mali Empire. Uh, kind of really expands the empire Torre does uh, after revolting against Ali's son. Uh, really reaches its peak of influence under Torre. Uh, however, eventually the Moroccan uh, army reclaims the gold that they were taken. Morocco is in the northern part of Africa, the top part of the Saharan Desert. And ultimately the Songhai capital is displayed. If you see right there... Uh, that map, you're going to see a map of the Songhai Empire. It's the largest of the empires. It kind of encompasses all of the Mali Empire, even though it's more to the east as well. 
You see Central Sudan, kind of the Western Sudan area, even though there are modern-day Sudans more south of Egypt. Um, it, too, is a very Muslim-centered empire, pretty strong empire. Now, you also have the West African forest kingdoms. Uh, this is a lot harder to get solid information on. Uh, we know that they're quite diverse. It was kind of a patchwork. They don't really have any large-scale empires. And we actually don't have as many records of them for various reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is that Islam never really came there, and because, as such, they don't really have that many written records. Also, they built more with wood. Um, in the Sahel, and the you know, with the Songhai and the Mali, it's a bit more arid, so they use more stone, and we have better archaeological evidence of what they did and didn't do. Uh, these forest kingdoms tended to use wood. Wood doesn't last as long, particularly over long periods of time, so we don't know too, too much. We do know that they have quite a bit of slave traders and victims. Um, I guess I now I'll get into slavery a little bit later, but uh, just just be aware that you do have some slaves coming from the forest kingdom. Uh, a lot of traders coming from there, but also victims. Like I said, we're talking a little bit about the the nature of West African slavery. Uh, Bien, which is modern day Nigeria, they actually have to do some skilled artisans and wealth. Um, they do depend a lot on the European slave trade later on, and also England also has a slave trade to the Americas. We're going to get into that later. Uh, if you go over one slide, you'll see some of the Nok people of uh, modern-day Nigeria. Uh, terracotta sculptures. Like I said, that's not too much from the forest people, mainly just because they built more with wood, and they don't have written records. If you have one more slide, you're also going to see the Trans-Saharan uh, trade routes. This is very important. This is how Ghana and Mali and the Songhai all got very wealthy. It's through Trans-Saharan trade. You know, they traded gold, they traded spices, some slaves. But, you know, they had their camel routes through the Saharan desert, which is quite arid. Had it not been for camels, they wouldn't have been able to really do anything or do that long. Um, particularly the ones through the center, the most direct routes to Cairo. Uh, Cairo is still seen as like the main place of wealth because from there you can get to Arabia and to the Mediterranean, uh, where you still have a lot more people going on there. Uh, not too many like trade routes through the Saharan itself. Uh, you see, for instance, the, the Ghana one that goes around Wadan and up into Morocco, around Fez. That's a pretty common one because it, you stay closer to the shore of the of uh, of the ocean, a little bit easier. Uh, the one that kind of skirts the bottom, you can see like by Dongola and uh, Blima. Uh, that also is kind of a common one. Fairly rare to go across the entire Sahara. It is more direct, but uh, yeah, it's a bit more, bit more, bit more tricky. But this is where these empires really get their wealth. Now, West African society, as I should say, it's very diverse. A lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different cultures. Uh, the thing we happen to know the most amount is the more uh, Muslim ones, because they have written records. But even the Muslim records start talking a lot about the other West African peoples, and it's very diverse. I mean, just because it's an empire, don't think that everybody in there belongs to the Songhai, belongs to the God, etc. As such, it's very hazardous to really generalize anything when it comes to social, cultural, or just backgrounds in general. Uh, maybe because we don't know, and it, I don't want to give it a sense of homogeny, 
where there isn't homogeny. Like, it's a very diverse place. Uh, because there's not too, too many written records outside of the Muslim stuff, uh, a lot of it is what we depend upon is oral histories, traditions, also archaeological studies provide understanding. Uh, West Africa is really big with the griots. Uh, that is basically your oral storytelling. We'll talk about them more in a second. But in general, if you go over one slide, West African society and culture is, is very built around the village. Uh, you do have some empires, some larger cities of learning, like Timbuktu, but by and large, most West African society, and remember, I am generalizing, even though I really shouldn't, in general, is very built upon large-scale family, either patrilineal or, or, or matrilineal families. Uh, patrilineal is basically through the father, but you also have a lot of matrilineal families where, like, you know, some things are inherited through the mother. Uh, in a lot of West African societies, you get your name from your father, but the land comes from the mother. Uh, West African families are very large. Uh, not just the nuclear family, like mom and dad. Uh, very big on grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, throughout the village. Uh, you know, villages tend to be a little bit larger on the savannah, there on the Sahel, and certainly there's barely any villages in the Sahara. Uh, some tools and weapons, grinding stones, chromatic vases, chromatic vases, bows, spears. Those are some of the archaeological evidence we have of what they actually live like. This is their material culture, which is basically how they live, how they use stuff. What we are able to tell, though, particularly around the Sahel and West Africa, is that farming is difficult. Uh, very difficult to have farming around there. What they do have is things like millet, which you've probably never had millet. It's not the best tasting stuff, not going to lie, but rice is the big one. West Africa is able to have rice. In fact, um, when we talk later, probably in another class, about the um, Gullah people of South uh, Carolina, they come from West Africa because they have rice-growing capabilities. Like I said, farming is very difficult. There is some hunting. It's, it's, it's just a hard place to live. Much more is based upon trade. Um... You also have this idea of polygenius, polygenius, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that is a larger family unit consisting of a man, his wives, and their children. It is not uncommon in West Africa for a man to have multiple wives. Uh, in some parts of the sub-Saharan Africa, you have places where uh, a woman would have more than one husband. But in West Africa, uh, a lot of it has to do with what traditional beliefs but also in Islam, a man is allowed to have, I believe, up to four wives. And so a lot of these families are quite large. Do you know one man, his children, um, his wives, all that kind of come together? Uh, that is kind of the basis of your village. Now, I bet you're wondering, huh, that's not great to women. Well, weirdly enough, in West Africa, women tended to actually have a good men about a freedom. Uh, pretty compared to contemporary societies. Uh, for instance, in Ghana, um, women could actually serve as government officials. Uh, they were never like kings or, or queens, as the case may be, or emperors, or empresses, as the case may be, uh, but they could really serve in very high government official positions. Um, they also could inherit land at points, and they often own property in the forest areas. And, in, and like I said, it depends on the tradition. In some West African, I hate to use the word tribes, because that implies a level of, dis, you know, uh, of, of weakness or 
an advancement, but in some West African, let's say, families or societies, uh, women could actually own property, not just in the forest region. Uh, you actually have a bit more sexual freedom than European women, um, which is more more apparent than real. Like basically, they said that women could have like casual sex or you know be a little bit more open with having sex before marriage than in other societies. It's more in theory than actual happened. And also, you do have secret societies which um, do dedicate ethical standards. That is something about West African society. Both men and women had secret societies. Uh, which pretty much, you know, only they could be a part of. Uh, they had their own secrets. They had their own, you know, rights and their own ways of processing information. So as I said, women have a little bit more, uh, you know, bit more, bit more freedom, bit more ability to do things. They can own property. They can have a bit more class than in other things. But now we get to slavery. Now all West African societies and I hate to use the word all, but the vast majority have some sort of hierarchical social structure wherein the king or the emperor is at top, and then you have different levels, like, you know, king, then priests and scribes, then, like, you know, your, your artisans, farmers, and slaves are at the bottom. Uh, the monarchs, they, they are not the absolute monarchs that you later have in Europe. Uh, they usually claim some sort of... Um, you know, supernatural or, or like ancestral line to it. Uh, they're not treated as gods like they are in parts of Europe or definitely part of uh, parts of China. But they, they mainly command the armies and they, they tax commerce. That's about the extent of a lot of their power. They, they are not as powerful as others that later come on. And you do have slavery. Now, slavery in West Africa, I mean, there's many differences from the slavery that comes later. But... I would say probably the biggest one is that slavery is not always permanent in West Africa. Um, most slavery in West Africa came from warfare. Pretty much like people would fight wars with each other. And basically you would capture the enemy, uh, particularly the women and children. Uh, male slaves were not very well desired in this time period. They're actually some of the least valuable slaves in West African society. Maybe because there's a threat of like, hey, these are their, the big, strong fighting people. They may kill me. Generally, women and children were the ones that were more likely. Now, in West African society, a master was responsible for the way of slaves' well-being. The easiest way I could define this, as opposed to what later happens on in the United States under chattel slavery, um, in the U.S., and it, honestly, in the New World, not just the U.S., because as we're going to talk about when we talk about slavery, it's not just the United States of America that had slaves. It's all over. But in the Western Hemisphere, under European slavery, slaves were thought of as property. Now, in West African society, they were thought of as members of the household. There's a huge difference between a member of the household and property. West African slaves, slave masters, treated their slaves as members of the household. They actually had some authority. They were deemed to be as theoretically of the same class. Uh, in general, slave children in West Africa were not sold into other people. But a lot of times, the children of slaves in West Africa were often free. Not all the time, but often enough that it wasn't true. Now, in general, a West African slave had the same status as their master. 
Now, how does that really come into play? Well, it really comes into play, like, for instance, if you're a royal slave. Like, if you're a slave of the king, you have the same authority as the king because you are considered to be in the, in the king's household. You know, something coming out of your mouth had the same weight as coming out of, like, another member of the king's household, like a child or something. So the slave of a, of a king had authority over free people because the slave had the same status as the master. This is going to change when we get into European slavery. Um, let's see. West African religion. I talked a little bit about this. Uh, like I said, there are two real religious traditions, the Islamic tradition and the indigenous West African traditional beliefs. Uh, West Africa, uh, sorry, Islam really is like big on Allah. It's the one where you have uh, Arabic that comes in with literacy. Uh, the mosque, which are still around in places like Timbuktu. Uh, Islam is very monotheistic. Um, indigenous religions are not. Uh, very many divinities. It's kind of animus. Um, they, too, believe in a like main creator god. Um, I guess akin to like Allah or God in the Christian tradition. However, they don't believe that God's very accessible to human beings. They think that, you know, God exists, the great, the create creator, you know, spirit exists. He's, he's out there, but he's very hard to get in contact with. He, he doesn't really concern himself with human affairs that often. Instead, things like the animals, uh, things like spirits of nature, ancestors, things like that, they were the ones who you could really get in contact with. So if you needed help, you know, you don't go to the big creator God because he's, he's you can't talk to him. He's just not comprehensible to human minds. Instead, you go to like your ancestor or like a force of nature, or maybe some animal spirits. Uh, West Africa is very big on magicians in this time period. Oracles, they are the ones who like contact the deities. They're the ones who contact the deities for you. They make sure everything's okay. They talk to them, get everything straight with that. Uh, also, rituals are seen as very important. There's various rituals like seem to evoke the spirits, evoke, you know, get get your answers. None of which is very well liked by Islam, I should say. Islam always has a very contentious relationship with West African beliefs. Now, art and music, um, there are some, I mean, religion does influence West African art, particularly the native beliefs. Um, most of the Islamic stuff is like an architecture. Islam's not really big upon having like depictions of like Allah or the prophets or, or Muhammad or anything like that. Um, but however, in West African beliefs, as part of their rituals, they often did have like arts, like masks and figurines to portray gods. Uh, in Bien, for instance, they have bronze sculptures. So remember how I said that uh, metalwork was always very big in West Africa. Also in West Africa, music is a big part of religion. Uh, one that you might have heard of is a fetish. Uh, now, like, don't think anything kinky. It's not a sexual thing. Um, basically, a fetish is a natural object that was believed to have, like, a magical power, like, imbued with a spirit. A lot of these, I'm not using the term witch doctor, because that brings up all sorts of negative connotations that are not accurate. But these, these West African spiritualists would have these fetishes they believe would draw out certain spirits. You get answers. It's like a, a tangible manifestation of a spiritual force. Um, do we have these in modern day religions? Yeah, kind of. I don't, I don't want to call it a fetish, but um, God, what's a, what's an unoffense? Like, like you have emblems, like a cross or something or like it, you know, you believe it, it manifests more than what it actually is. 
Now, because traditional West African beliefs don't have literacy, very big on oral storytelling. Remember, I said they were illiterate, but they were not unintelligent. They were not stupid. They were intelligent. And a big part of that is their oral history. Uh, passes from generation to generation. Uh, you have court poets, of course, you know, who basically tell the stories of various kings and all. But in particular, you have griots. Uh, griot is a French version of a West African word. Pretty just means just a storyteller, like a, a, a keeper of the record. Uh, they were the ones who really told the stories. They're the ones we really know who really exist as kind of the record keepers for West Africa, the historians, if you will, even though there is no written records. Now, a lot of times griots, they sing songs. Oftentimes they set it to music, so it's a little bit more palatable and kind of fun. But sometimes they actually tell just prose. Sorry. I have the hiccups. Sometimes they just tell prose stories. Now, these prose stories, uh, they can have human or animal characters. Uh, you might be familiar with the Asanzi stories, uh, of the spider stories. That's kind of from West Africa. Uh, you have animal tales, trickster tales, kind of the, the American equivalent of something like Br'er Rabbit. Uh, this idea that it's like, you know, th these are characters who are typically not the strongest characters. They're, they're not generally that powerful. But they tend to, you know, subvert or, like, overthrow uh, their, their opponents by being smarter and crafty and tricksters and things like that. Uh, there's animal tales, of course, they always had. Uh, they have human tales. All these various things. Uh, later on, once, Afri once you know, these West Africans get to America, they adapt them to be more about the white masters. Uh, we're going to talk about more when we get into slave culture, but something like the Br'er Rabbit story, very similar to the West African Asanzi stories, in that it's like it's a trickster um, allegory. You know, it's like they're, they're, they're animals, but they're not really animals. They're talking about the current situation. Uh, technology. Technology is really good for West Africa in general. Uh, particularly with metalwork. Uh, metalwork in general is way more advanced for most of history than anything going on in Europe, uh, particularly with iron. Um, West African ironworks are really good. Uh, they make tools, they make weapons, they're able to do that even though the land's kind of desolate. Uh, Likewise, they're able to make textiles, um, that's like clothing. Um, Islamic influence really influenced the textiles, uh, particularly that's one of the things they started trading in West Africa. Uh, particularly the wear that they used to cross the Saharan Desert. A lot of what they take to cross the Saharan, which beforehand they're like, nobody's going to do that. But once they get camels, they really start adopting the Muslim style of dress to like kind of protect one. Uh, the architecture, a lot of it, a lot of the mosques we still have around are Islamic. But however, uh, there are some traditional buildings out there. They typically didn't survive as long in the forest regions, but they do have some of the Sahel. And you have large-scale mosques. Uh, there is rice that's been produced in West Africa since uh, 1000 BCE. Uh, rice has been around in West Africa for forever. They have some of the most advanced rice-growing techniques during this time period. Uh, in fact, that's one of the main reasons why rice is grown in South Carolina is because it has a similar climate to West Africa. And really, 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 that's one of the reasons why the United States, when they were trying to get slaves later on, really looks towards West Africa. It has a similar climate, and they think it's going to be better suited for what they're trying to do in the United States. 
So what do I want you to take away from all this? Well, if you get to the conclusions, uh, the main thing I really want you to know is, number one, when we talk about African-Americans, it really begins in West Africa. Like, pretty much everything we know about African-Americans, well, anything we know about human history, really comes from Africa. But in particular, African-Americans really begins in West Africa, around Ghana, Sierra Leone. Now, because of the various, you know, elements of the climate, of the geography, and the history, there's a lot of stuff we don't really know about. Uh, the development of humankind. I mean, we might learn more about that later. We're not sure. Uh, the role of ancient Egypt. Remember, Egypt was not just a symbol back then, but also nowadays of, like, you know, were the Egyptians black? What does this mean for a larger Afrocentric world? Also, Egypt's relationship to Nubia and Kush. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, a lot of Nubia and Kush stuff, which, as we've said, is, like, definitely black, really influenced Egypt. Now, West Africans, uh, however, once they were taken to America, they do preserve their heritage, and their legacies continue to influence American life. You know, things like the oral storytelling tradition, uh, elements of West Africa. And, and another thing I want you to think about is kind of this tension between Islam and the traditional beliefs. You know, there, there is an element in West Africa, not as much nowadays, but in this time period, that Islam is the proper thing to believe in. And it's, it's what the elites have. Then you have your more common folk who, you know, who go for the more traditional beliefs. You know, they're, they're, they're wanting stories of Asanzi, the spider, and, and other tales, not just, you know, stories from the Quran. And so this kind of tension that really influences it. Also, think about the difference between the Sahel and the forest kingdoms. You know, even though the Sahel is a bit more desolate, we have more evidence of them because they do have writing, thanks to the Muslim influence, and also because they built with stone because of lack of materials. Uh, we have more archaeological evidence. This is opposed to the forest kingdoms, which you don't have as much uh, literary evidence. Well, you have none because they, they never really adopted Islam. But also the archaeological evidence is less because they built with wood, and wood deteriorates much quicker than stone. Also, think about the role of slavery in West Africa. We talked about that a little bit, and I want you to think about it more as we, particularly as we get into next class, which talks about slavery coming over to the New World. Uh, slavery was, was viewed as an accepted part in West Africa. Um, slaves were seen as part of the slave owner's household, came through warfare, uh, not really used too much for, for labor, agricultural labor, like, at all in this time period. But you do have kind of a surplus of the young strong men, the soldier type, who weren't viewed as valuable as like a woman or a child for long-term things. And so you theoretically start having a surplus of these stronger male slaves. Now, is there a slave trade before the New World slave trade? Absolutely. They trade across the Saharan Desert. It's not a major part by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, something like the gold trade is much more lucrative, but still definitely a part. Now, are there forays with Europe? I mean, Europe is aware of what's going on in Africa. Uh, not too, too much, but somewhat. Uh, they know that there are very wealthy people there. As For instance, that Portuguese map of, uh, of Africa included Mansa Musa. They knew that Mansa Musa was incredibly wealthy. But there's not too many sustained um, interactions between Europeans and Africans. But that is going to change with the coming of the transatlantic slave trade. But that's a story for another time. So what I want you to do, I want you to go through your quiz and also be prepared to talk about this. Be prepared to talk about West African society, what you know about it, what you don't know about it, and we'll talk about it more later. So 
But for that, this is Dr. Tully Tully for History 311, uh, finishing up African origins of African Americans.